This is the Stand Alone podcast, supporting estranged adults in everyday life. Yesterday, at the time of this episode's release, Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced an official three-week lockdown, asking residents across the UK to only leave their homes in emergency situations for essential food shopping and only once a day for exercise alone, but not to meet up with anybody from outside their home. Whilst maintaining good mental health is such a key battle for many people who are experiencing estrangement, this period of isolation and uncertainty presents a new challenge to deal with. So, on today's edition of the podcast, the first of two support podcast episodes, hear two regular voices on a remote conference call from their homes. Becca Bland, the founder and CEO of Standalone UK, and Jonathan Stockwell, who's the support group leader for one of the charity's six groups across the UK, based in Edinburgh. Becca and Jonathan answer questions which have been sent to them over the past few days by members of the Stand Alone community, about managing expectations of family members, about dealing with that feeling of the need to reach out, about staying safe and looking after your own mental health, and practical advice as well, about student accommodation, housing tenancy, and about taking measures to stop your next of kin being contacted in case of emergency. This call was recorded by a conference call yesterday. Hello, Becca. Hi, Jonathan. How are you doing? Uh, I'm fine, thank you. (laughs) So tell me how you're doing up there in, in Edinburgh. How's things? Well, the weather is absolutely beautiful. Spring is continuing regardless. We can still go for walks locally, so there's some beautiful spring flowers coming up, and you can hear the birds because there's less traffic, and the light is beautiful. But yeah, things are quiet. Things are a bit a bit weird. <laughs> and I was telling all my younger friends that now they know what Sundays were like in the 1970s. <laughs> is that what is that what I was like? <laughs> yes, <laughs> really quiet. <laughs> Well, it's actually really not very quiet here in London. I'm really ah. amazed by, you know, obviously everyone's not behaving. Everyone's going to the parks. There was right. a market on on Saturday that was just rammed. So oh, yeah, I think yeah. people in London are just generally quite rebellious and have got problems taking advice. Yeah, I cycled through the park yesterday and there were also plenty of groups there. People playing football, you know, coming well within two metres of each other to tackle each other. But at night, particularly in the evening, I cycled through the city on Thursday and there were just a few kind of ghostly delivery riders and they were the oh, only really? people out, basically. Yeah. And how are you keeping in the middle of all this? We're here to talk to other people about how they're feeling, but I think it's good to check in with how we're feeling. So how are you? I think I'm all right so far. I'm aware it's still early days. I've got a lot of reading and writing to do, so I've got a bit of extra time to do that in, although it's hard to concentrate because this whole thing is very distracting and just keeping up with the news is something that I find myself being drawn into. But I'm okay. Uh, We have enough food. We have enough toilet paper for now. So that's that's okay. How about you? All the basics covered, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. How about you? I kind of vacillate between being feeling okay and feeling that I'm on top of things and it's all all right. I can handle something like this. I've been through a lot in my life, so I've got the skills and then just 
actually panic and fear and just thinking from that really fearful mindset that what happens if I lose people I love and what happens if this becomes a really big tragedy for the country and I'm kind of calling on my grand's wartime mentality of trying to get through things and having determination and, and collaboration. And there's been some lovely things happening in the community in London where people are just really helping each other, reaching out and acting yeah. like Londoners don't normally act, like basically talking to each other and saying, let's get through this together. Whereas London can mm. be a really anonymous city. And even though I've lived here for, wow, nearly 12 years, it's still that sense where you don't actually know your neighbours till a time like this, <laughs> which I find quite fascinating personally. Yeah, I think it's really encouraging all of the things that are happening for delivering groceries to people who can't get out. So it does seem to be bringing people together in a rather strange and paradoxical way. But I'm also aware though that actually a lot of people who are struggling with other things unrelated to corona are finding that... In some ways, a lot of anxiety is seeming to disappear about, mm. about the things that they used to worry about. And that doesn't yeah. necessarily mean it's really disappearing, but it seems to be going underground. People seem to be focusing on this. And I've heard people being relieved that they're not worrying about the old things anymore, but they're aware that they haven't gone away. Yeah, yeah. it is that kind of thing, isn't it, where this is so overwhelming and so all-consuming that almost every mm. other worry... And the things he goes through normally just pale in comparison, don't they? Because yeah. I think it is almost like survival. You yeah. need to survive this. So yeah. everything else doesn't matter. That's right. That's right. But it does matter, yeah. obviously. But I totally understand that. I think other things that I've been concerned about suddenly just feel very, very trivial almost. I think we put processing of those things aside for a while while we concentrate on what seems to be the main, the main thing. But aware that they'll still be there though to process when we get back when we get back to normal yeah indeed they will no no they don't go away permanently unfortunately mm. but a big shout out from both Jonathan and I I guess to everybody in the community who at a time like this when these big pandemics take over mm. and we're in this emergency mentality then suddenly the whole world starts talking about family again and I think mm. we're back in an almost quasi-Christmas situation where there's a lot of questions going around and a lot of people with real quandaries about whether to reach out to family members and let them know whether they're okay or just generally feeling a sense of shame and embarrassment or not knowing how to respond to people who ask them questions about family. Mm. I've certainly fielded a few over the last few days <laughs> and even though my estrangement has been going on for a long time, still find it very hard to answer those questions because there seems to be a sense of this should override all that decision-making and all that processing and the journey that I've been on to heal from that trauma and you should just get in touch. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the losses of the people who made a decision not to be in touch with relatives, suddenly what seemed like a very firm decision suddenly he's kind of opened up again. Does that still apply in this circumstance? And so the thought process of how final a decision is this is kind of reopened. And that's a difficult thing to go through yet again you know, when, when people have found that they've got some kind of peace from having arrived at a, a difficult decision that they might have taken some time ago, but it still made things a bit more tranquil in their lives, perhaps, not to have relationships that are very difficult. And this reopens it all up again. 
Yeah, and I think I come back to the research with Hidden Voices that Dr. Lucy Blake and I did some years ago now where estrangement is seen to be cyclical, where it's not something that's ever a permanent thing. Mm-hmm. And even though it may feel very permanent at the time the decision's made, then actually it's moments like this that reopen, as you say, Jonathan, our process of consideration and, yeah, our decisions. It makes us think about our decision, doesn't it? Yeah, and you say you've spoken to quite a few people who are going through that at the moment. Yes, so on Friday we put a mail out to our newsletter asking them what kind of things they were going through and needed advice with over this COVID-19 crisis and we got a lot of emails back and a lot of them shared similar themes so rather than ask everybody's individual question and repeat everything we've grouped them into three sections with about five questions each and those questions reflect what generally you guys sent back should say there's some very factual questions that are easier to answer because of policy announcements in recent days, but there's also some emotional questions which, much as Jonathan and I wish that we probably had all the answers for everybody, unfortunately we don't. <laughs> and so what we'll be doing is just talking through those questions and just giving some advice, but not something that's definitive. The decisions will have to be down to yourselves and your personal situation, but we can certainly talk through some of the points that those questions raise. Well, I think there are some common themes that arise, and it's just about helping to think things through from your own perspective. And as you say, everyone's situation is so unique that we can only talk in fairly general terms, really. And as you say, I don't have any answers. I have my own set of questions because of my own personal experience of estrangement. I'm going through this myself too, Um, but my own answers that I find for myself won't necessarily apply to somebody else. No, and we can never be in a position where we should say, you should definitely do this or definitely do that. I think it's more about helping you feel more reassured with the process of making decisions around your situation. So shall we crack on, Jonathan, with the first section, which is called Getting in Touch. And we got a lot of questions from people about getting in touch. And the first one was a very common question that many of you sent. So I want to know that my family member is okay or give information about me being okay or not okay. An example for someone sent in anonymously, I'm considering whether to send my mother a card simply stating that I hope she's okay. We've been estranged for four years and prior to that, most of my adult life, I'm estranged from most of my other family members too. It's my mum I've been thinking about as she's in her late 70s and in a vulnerable group. Not sure whether to write or not as my family has simply let me go. So there we've got an example of a quandary, I guess. But more generally, what do we think about this idea of getting in touch or not? I think one of the first things is to actually look inside and figure out what it is you really want And that might not be very clear at the moment because there's a lot of very complex feelings coming up when you start reconsidering contacting a family member. It might be worth taking time is something really important, taking time to think about and get in touch with what actually you're feeling and what you'd like to happen and what you wouldn't like to happen. And then maybe to start thinking about uh, how you might go about achieving that result. Not that that's clear cut but getting clarity about what you're feeling and thinking yourself and of course also things feelings might change from day to day 
So maybe there's something about taking the time to see what happens when things, when those initial feelings settle down a little bit. You know, the scenario that you talked about, getting in touch, uh, I want to know my family member's okay, or giving information about me being okay or not okay. There's already three or four different scenarios in that one example. What is your family member isn't okay? What will you do? What will you want to do? Will that lead you back into a relationship that you don't maybe really want? Or what if you tell them that you're not okay? What would you want from them? How will you cope if they don't give you what it is you want, if they don't want to take care of you, or they don't reach out in the way that you want? So it's about figuring out how to respond in a way that feels safe, not just in terms of infection, obviously, in terms of virus, but also psychologically safe. Think about what would feel safe and what wouldn't feel safe to you. Mm. And safety is so important because we had some questions where people had identified that there were safety issues in their relationships previously. For example, they'd mm. survived domestic violence or forced marriage, very serious matters within families that had meant they had separated. And they felt almost guilted to going back, even though there were very unsafe circumstances that they left. Mm. And my instinct is to say that not only about being kind at this moment but you do have to look after yourself and your mental health and make an assessment for yourself as to whether going back is something that is right for you and right for your mental health physical health and generally how have you got the coping mechanisms to be able to walk back into a relationship that is potentially harmful yeah i think at times like this when mental health can come under strain when there's so many other stresses Aside from estrangement, there's just the daily stress of dealing with the, the crisis and the uncertainty that that can make us want to reach out to people who've been significant to us, who might, despite everything, might still represent a notion of security and belonging and family. And those feelings are very seductive. And of course, they're seductive because they're essential human needs. But it's something about being realistic about what you can really expect or what you can ask for. And it may be that by reaching out, it might be the right moment to reconnect, but it might be absolutely the wrong moment. And there's always going to be a degree of unpredictability that I think is very difficult for people. That's what's difficult to cope with. No one really knows how another person is going to react in a different circumstance. Worth remembering, though, that your family will also almost certainly be going through similar stresses in relation to the virus. And so they may also be under a lot of stress and that might affect their response as well so there's something also about not necessarily assuming that any stressful response is to do with the contact it might just be the background stress of dealing with the situation so there's a lot of complexity to go through i think really which again brings me back to this importance of knowing how you are inside internally what you're thinking and feeling because that's something we can be a bit more clear about yeah and I think in terms of sending a card, perhaps that is a safer way forward because it's something that ultimately you don't need to give your address and there is something there that's saying that you can send a message but it doesn't really open a link if you don't want to open a link but it does send well wishes in this kind of situation. Yeah, sending a message gives the other person a bit of time to think and feel as well and to reflect which might be a good thing. Sometimes with sending things difficult to know whether the other person has really received it or not. I think that's something, a bit of uncertainty that can be difficult to live with. If you send something through the post, might somebody else have got it? 
might the post be a bit up spout at the moment? So this question of what is the best way to get in touch in writing to make sure that the other person actually receives the message you're sending? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. But then maybe text isn't such a good thing either because you don't want to send off just a short message that doesn't really express clearly what it is you're feeling and wanting. Yeah. And I guess what it speaks to a little bit of what you've said is that it's about reducing the weight of expectation on these kinds of communications. You know, reconciliation at the best of times without any societal emergency going on is really tricky and something that takes a long time. And even though we may have feelings of wanting to reconcile at this moment and it is in some of the research that we've done it's seen that kind of emergencies or legal problems or health problems do often incite reconciliation I think it is just borrowing from Dr. Mm. Joshua Coleman for a minute it's so important to understand that that is a long process and it may well be very difficult for a long time so in some ways I think removing the weight of expectation that you're going to get that unconditionally loving kind supportive Mm. parental or child response or sibling response that you want you know that familial love that you really crave maybe taking the weight of that expectation away is a wise thing to do and just saying I want to communicate something but I'm not expecting much in return yeah absolutely and it's likely to be a process that takes some time to reconcile and of course on the other side you might want to reach out just to say, are you okay, and not want anything more. So there might also be something about being able to communicate to your family what you don't want in terms of reconciliation, that Mm -hmm. that actually, although it's good to know how they're doing, that you don't think it can lead to anything more sustained than that. I'm just thinking as well about the writing and about the contacting there. It might be a good idea to ask yourself, how will I be... If I send a letter or I send an email, how will I be in the days following where it might just be that the person is taking the time to think about it and to reply, or it might be that they decide not to reply. How will I be if they don't reply? Will I cope with that? Yeah, and how will I cope with that? What will I put in Hmm. place to help me cope? Yeah, absolutely. Thinking about what support you have, who you can talk to about this, what kind of things help you stay on an even keel, when it might be difficult to access nature, for example, at the moment, one of the things that a lot of people seem to find very supportive is to get out and see the spring flowers, and that might not be so easy at the moment. So quite a few things to think through. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to reiterate, then, only do so if you feel it's safe. If it's going to compromise your safety, you really have to think carefully about whether you can handle that and what it means for you. I think it's one of those moments, isn't it, where it's possibly the worst time to reconcile because of all the things that are depleted. So we haven't got a lot of our mental health coping mechanisms available to us and we're going to go into a period of social isolation as well as not being able to be outdoors or have group yoga classes or exercise classes and we might not even be able to run down the canal or the park soon. So I guess it's all that considering all that. Can you cope without all those things and handle a reconciliation at this moment? How's that going to be for you? Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, it could be the thing you need and it could happen, but there's no certainties about it. Yeah. And I think it kind of brings up this question that comes up a lot with estrangement of how would you feel if that person died? I get that 
a lot. Well, I used to get that a lot before I started standalone, and I told various mm. people. And that used to be the default question that people went to of like, how would you feel if they were seriously ill? Or how would you want to get back in touch if you knew they only had three days to live? And such hard questions to answer. Often I think it does bring up that principle, doesn't it, of what would I do if I lost this person and how would I feel and what does that loss of life for that person bring up for me? You know, really hard questions. Absolutely. You can contact people with the hope of reconciling, but you can also contact people just to let them know that you've made your peace with them. If this is the case, of course, that you no longer are angry with them or that you hope that they're well. So there can be a reaching out just to express some kind of goodwill. That's it. You can reach out to express goodwill without necessarily intending it to be a reconciliation or even Mm. saying it's best if we don't contact each other, but I want you to know I'm thinking about you and I have only good intentions towards you. You know, something like that. That's also a possibility. Mm. Yeah. Moving on to a few more of the questions, like if I do reconcile, can I make it different? Big question here, isn't it? I think we've talked a little bit about it. What do you think, Jonathan? (laughs) Yeah, that really is a good question. Let's give you an example. My mother contacted me this week to see if I was okay. It was nice to know she cares, but in the two, two and a half years since we spoke, I felt much happier. It stressed me out as I don't want to have any contact. I'm worried she thinks we can pick up where we left off. I don't know how to tell her to leave me alone. Yeah, well, that example sounds relatively clear cut. It's obvious that there's still some connection, some kind of residual connection there. But that person seems quite clear that they don't want to restart regular contact. Mm. But I think in many cases that might not be quite so clear. There might be a lot more hope that things could be different. And your general question was, if I do reconcile, can I make it different? And I think it's interesting Mm. to notice the I there, can I make it different? Because, of course, for it to be different, it takes two people to behave differently or a group of people to behave differently but nevertheless of course one person can initiate a change so Mm. um, and that's often very helpful for somebody to make a shift and to communicate differently to do something different that changes the whole dynamic and again that's never entirely predictable how people will respond to that it usually always takes the family system some time to change to some some new element a new dynamic But it is possible for you as an individual to do something different, to say Mm. something you don't normally say, to behave in a way that you don't normally behave, and to see what happens with that. So I think you're able to do that. That's great, as long as you don't, (laughs) as long as you stay realistic about the chances that people might not respond in the way you want them to. But then again, they might. I think also Mm. there's something about thinking about how resilient you are. It does take a long time to change things. Or if the other person isn't willing to change, how will you deal with that? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. It takes a lot of resilience, doesn't it? Mm, It does. It does. You know, patience is a great thing, but it might or might not pay off. I think also to think about what are the feelings that are driving you to try again and what are the prospects of that happening? Yeah. That's not a rhetorical question. I'm not assuming that the chances are bad, but on the other side, not assuming that they're good either. But, you know, everyone's situation will be different and up to each person to adjust their hopes to what seems 
realistic in their relationship. Yeah, and again, I think this comes back to boundaries and needs. You can voice your needs of what you need to change. I think you make such a good point. It's like, how can I make it different? I think it's almost an impossible question. It has to be about we, doesn't it, and the group Mm. of people making it different. I think it's really important to voice those needs. At this time, I might want to get back in touch, and I hope you're okay, but I do need things to be different to how they were before. Mm-hmm. It's not like you can just throw your boundaries and your needs away in this emergency. You want a relationship to change. It still needs to change, doesn't it, for it to be healthy? Yeah, absolutely. Some people will have had the experience of trying very, very hard and finding that the rest of the family or other people don't respond. Carry on doing the same thing in the hope of getting a different response. They're often advised against don't do the same thing mm. hope to get a different response, a different outcome. Yeah. So if you try to reconnect and you do reach out and you've been rebuffed and somebody doesn't want that relationship, very possible as we were talking about, how do we heal from that? How do we cope with that at this difficult time? That sounds really bruising, doesn't it? That rejection. I would think give yourself some credit for trying. You've taken a risk. You've done something. You've reached out. You've tried to do something. And if it doesn't work, you've had a go. And I'm not saying that everyone should do that. But I think, you know, give yourself some credit for trying. But then again, to think about what might need to change for there to be a different outcome. Is there a change you can make? Or maybe you just feel that there's nothing you can do that would make them think or feel differently. I think there's something around expectation as well, isn't there, that because this is an emergency, my relative should reply or they should be in touch because that's what relatives do at this time of need. And again, I think it's about adjusting expectations, isn't it, that other people might just not be ready to respond. Yes, for all sorts of reasons as well, yeah. It might be also even concern. People might feel that they are toxic to you. Mm. a recognition sometimes that I'm not good for this person and Mm. fear about having contact in case there's more damage. But rejection is very hard to accept. And I don't think you should expect yourself to heal from that immediately. Mm. It's a process that's going to take time and it's going to be painful for a while. Some people seem to require themselves that they get over that rejection very quickly. It's about being gentle with yourself, allowing yourself to feel hurt and knowing that that is a very normal reaction to rejection. That is Mm. is a human reaction to rejection. And there's nothing weak about that. There's no failing on the person who's been hurt. That's how you feel. It's just about figuring out what is going to help you to feel better again. And I think that is connection to people who do make you feel good to go to I think that's one of the big things we might not be able to meet up now but there are ways of contacting people I think it's so important that if you do go through that rejection to find people as you say Jonathan who do accept you for who you are that's a really important thing to have during this time is people that may not be biologically related or are relatives per se but they can act as family And they can help you with that rejection if that's what you're going through. I think there are some people as well who've had such damaging experiences in families that they might feel that no one can accept them. Mm. And I'd just like to gently challenge that. 
that perhaps there are just because your family wasn't able to cope with who you were it doesn't mean to say everybody will have that attitude mm, absolutely so reaching out but also just knowing what things you can do just think about what things you do that make you feel better in the long term mm. there'll be a greater temptation I think at this time to use things like drugs or alcohol self-harming it might be a greater risk of those things happening of people turning to mm. those things to dull the pain it's perfectly understandable but of course it's not something that's going to help you in the longer term no So just moving on to our final question in this section, really. So how can I deal with near constant ruminations on my estranged relatives? I can't stop thinking about them all the time. Even though I might not be reaching out or getting in touch, I feel like I'm thinking about them constantly. It makes me wonder what those ruminations are about, because I think they might come from all sorts of different sources. It could be the result of trauma. There could be images that are very intrusive. But that would be very different from a situation where there's a lot of ambivalence, where there's been a breakdown in the family relationships, but actually there's a lot of love as well. So people might be thinking about people that they actually still love, but haven't had any contact with for a while. So those are very, very different situations. If the ruminations are more intrusive, and people are feeling traumatized because they've gone through something really horrible with a family relationship, then that's maybe the time to consider going to the doctor or seeing a counsellor and getting support for that because there are techniques that will help with that, things like mindfulness, grounding techniques. It might well need some support. Mm. If it's rumination because there's a lot of mixed feelings around, that's, I think that's a very different matter. Uh, I think lots of people know that experience of Googling strange relatives and trying to find out bits of information, looking at pictures that might be online. And I guess the question is, is that helping or is that actually just feeding the compulsive nature of it? So might it be a good idea to try and regulate how often you actually act on your thoughts by trying to find out information? I think it's really hard, isn't it? I would say from my own experience that yoga has been incredible for helping me with ruminations and just bringing the mind and the body together and breath work has been really, really powerful. And I think it takes you out of that state that you get into Mm -hmm. where you're constantly thinking around in circles, Mm -hmm. maybe fearful responses, wondering if they're all right, or angry responses being like, how come they haven't got in touch? Or just general, like, why am I in this position without family around me? Then when we have those ruminations and they take a lot of time in our lives, then I've found that yoga has really helped me deal with a lot of that. Mm There's so much online yoga at the moment. (laughs) Like my inbox is full of it, and I'm sure you can find it in your local area from your local studio. People doing videos or live yoga events. Something you can do in your home very easily, and it's something that is very, very good for your mental health. Just bring the mind body together. Mm. That's another thing. In addition to that, is actually to do something creative that helps you to actually figure out what you're really feeling. The mm. ruminations can feel very general and mixed up. So writing something or painting something or drawing something 
doing something creative mm. can help you to maybe untangle a little bit. Because ruminations, it feels to me as if ruminations are when people are trying to figure something out very often, trying to understand something, whether it's about, understand something about what happened in the relationship or understand something about what's going on inside them. And writing or creative work of some sort can really help to do that. It can be a mixture of that and then something that actually really takes your mind away from it, like yoga or mindfulness. Yeah, I think that's a really valid point. Often we just want to get away from ruminations, but as you say, stepping into them and applying a creative process around them can be very helpful. I've Mm. certainly experienced that. It's very helpful, writing particularly. Mm. There's Um, something in creative writing therapy called the morning pages. And if you Google that, or perhaps we can put a link in the show notes, it's when you first wake up, you just write as much as you actually want, very free-flowing without any structure. And it just gets out of your mind what's in there and helps you to reckon with it. So I think that's a very powerful practice too. Absolutely. And of course, talking, (laughs) talking to people who can listen and who can hear your story without judging it or without trying to solve something for you. People who can actually sit and listen. (laughs) They can feel a bit thin on the ground sometimes, but if you find one, talk. Exactly. And I think there's something really healing about being heard by someone in non-judgment. And I think something about being curious as well. So be curious about what's going on for you. What's actually happening? You know, what what are you feeling? Is it it guilt? Is it shame? Is it love? Is it concern? Is it rejection? Is it a mixture of all those things? But be curious about what's happening for you as well in a kind of constructive way. Mm, Absolutely. That's been a wonderful first section, just talking around some of those problems of getting in touch. But I am painfully aware that there's a lot of people here listening who are probably like, I have got none of these problems because I'm really sure and I have been sure for years and years and years that I don't want to get back in touch. And I think the problems during this emergency period with COVID-19 are quite different for those people. And certainly the emails we got back had one very strong theme. And again, we're not going to answer everyone's personal email, but what we are going to do is just look thematically at the questions and group them together. So I think when you're out of touch with someone, and I personally am in this position, I think what we have to deal with a lot is implied judgment of others. If you're remaining out of contact, there might be a lot of questions or a lot of frowns or a lot of people's responses, which you feel implied judgment. And so how do we protect ourselves when we've made a decision and it's been a well thought through and long standing decision about not having a relative in our lives? How do we deal with that judgment at this time and deal with the sense of affection that people have for families and that almost bias towards being in touch because it's an emergency? Yeah, well, I know that myself, when I'm confronted with this, I go through a range of emotions from shame, actually, still, and anger as well. I get quite angry that people think that they can sort out my problem (laughs) or that it's that easy to solve. And I kind of find myself thinking, well, if I can tolerate you having a lovely, loving, happy family relationship and I respect that and value it, then, you know, (laughs) can you not respect the situation that I'm in without judging me for it you know and of course it's not always a matter of choice is it either I tried in response to this question I I tried to figure out what I would say 
And I think maybe not so easy when somebody's doing it very subtly. It's quite mm. difficult to call that out, maybe. But it's still possible. But if somebody's really going for it, I think I'd say, well, it's really difficult to hear that from you because it hasn't been an easy process. It's not an easy thing. And I get that you can't understand what it's like and why anyone would not be in touch with their family. But I'd really like it if you could just trust that no one cuts contact with their family lightly. And if you can't support me in dealing with what is really a hard situation for me, then please at least don't judge me for it. And don't assume that there are easy answers. That's what flowed from me. That is from a, me. Strong, a strong message there, Jonathan, I think. Really strong. <laughs> It is, and I'm not suggesting that it could be anybody else's answer. That's my own personal answer, and I think, in a sense, that's the only answer I can give to that. But it is something about setting boundaries, about saying, hang on, no, 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 you don't know this situation. You can't really comment on it because you don't know it. But I think even if you can't express that to the other person, knowing yourself, those comments that the other person are making are on the situation that they're imagining in their head. It's not your situation. So don't take them on board. Don't take it in because they're commenting on a fantasy. Their fantasy, they're not commenting on your reality. Yeah. And also I think they're commenting on the idea that family is always relative. And I think it's that idea that ultimately it's important to have family around you at this time. It's really important to feel what family gives, that sense of support, that sense of source about of being cared for. But that doesn't always come from our biological and related people. That can come from friend family or it can come from very distant cousins or it can come from a whole variety of places. So the idea that if someone asks how your family do you have to respond about your biological relatives? I always think that maybe there's some mo- room for manoeuvre there to kind of say that, oh, well, actually, the two I consider my family are are gratefully okay at this moment and they might not be. Or I think there's just an adjustment there, isn't there, about the word family, that it's not always relatives. So do we have to always answer to people too? I think we have a really strong sense that we should explain ourselves all the time to people because mm-hmm. we've made this decision. Mm-hmm. And is it really that necessary to explain? I'm just not so sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you define family in the way you want to. I think that's a, a very neat way of dealing with it, Becca, yeah. But also just that sense that you should have to explain your whole story if somebody asks you why you're not in touch. Then mm. I think it's really valid to say it's complicated and it's mm. painful. And this is Mm. something that I don't want to talk about right now because there's already a lot of very difficult things happening. And the last thing I want to do is get into this. Absolutely. And I think what I was saying at the beginning about it can sometimes be those very subtle things. You can pick up judgment through just a little raised eyebrow or there can be things that happen that are very subtle that can still trigger that feeling of being judged. And they're quite tricky because I think you have to deal with those things a bit more internally. But it is about just not accepting that other people are able to or have a right to to, to comment on on your situation. No, and their situation is probably not just straightforward either. I think at times like this, then there's that bias towards being in touch. But it's important to remember that all families are going to go through a lot of complexity in this time. And there's a lot of fearful responses from people too, because they might lose people or it's a really, really complex time for all family relationships, whether you're estranged or not. 
and I think it does throw into acute light that the strong ones and the people that will stand by us and give us emotional support or the very weak ones where we don't quite get what we need. So I think for everyone, whether they consider themselves estranged or not, it puts everyone through something. And I think it's true of our friendships too. We begin to, in a time like this, really understand who our friends are and who our, who our family, in inverted commas, is. I think you're absolutely right, actually, that it does help to know where other people might be coming from. You know, there might be people who the idea of losing their relatives is so distressing that they simply can't imagine how it might be not to be in touch with somebody. Or there might be people who've struggled with very difficult family relations themselves for many years. And that might lead them to think that everyone should struggle, but <laughs> that doesn't follow and they're not the same relationships either. So maybe it does help to have a little bit of imagination to think about where the other person who you feel is judging you, to where they're coming from. Because as you say, they will have their own things going on, whatever they are. Absolutely, and I think that's an important skill in life, isn't it? To have empathy and understanding and to be able to contextualise people's responses and to be able to say, at this heightened time, people are going to respond in a very emotive way because of their own fears and expectations and worries. And that isn't about my situation. That doesn't mean that I'm wrong to have gone through this process in my relationship and now it's ended. You'd certainly never talk about that in terms of an ex-husband or an ex-partner. Mm-hmm. You know, people wouldn't expect you to suddenly get back in touch That's if right. someone felt the relationship was very damaging. So I think yeah. it's about having your own sense of sturdiness about the decision you've made and not letting other people rock mm-hmm. that because it's a difficult time. Yeah. Well, I noticed as well, you know, they're talking about responses. I noticed my initial response to this question was really angry, actually. Some of that might have come out in the kind of response that I formulated there. But, you know, feeling that anger is also, it's okay to be angry. It might not be a good idea to express it in a kind of uncontrolled way, but it's okay to have those responses, to be ashamed, to be angry, to be all sorts of things. To work through those feelings, you have to recognize them. You have to feel it to heal it, as they say. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, feel it to heal it. What a great, great phrase. (laughs) So there's another question coming here around how do you make sure that your parents or other family members are not contacted in the event you become critically ill? I'm just going to read an example here that someone sent us. I'm approaching 60 and estranged from my family. If I got ill, I'd probably be in trouble. How do I sack my next of kin? I don't want them to be contacted in the event of my death. I'm also concerned about the powers of the nearest relative when it comes to mental health. So I think this is a very complicated question that we did some research on over the weekend about power of attorney, which is essentially the next of kin if you don't have the capacity to make decisions about your health or mental health. And I think it's a really unclear situation around this on the whole in policy so if you are married or if you have a partner and you're in a civil partnership automatically they will become your next of kin so that's your situation and you have a spouse or you have someone in a civil partnership unless you don't want them to be the power of attorney then you won't need to be so concerned about this however there isn't any guidance for people and unfortunately you're actual relatives are going to be contacted in the event of an emergency. So we suggest 
something very, very simple, which you could tell some of your good friends about or the person you live with about or a distant relative about, to say that you write a letter which you can give to them and keep for yourself that just states very simply who you want your next of kin to be. So I want it to be my next door neighbour. Say, for example, that's the person you feel you most trust who can be contacted here and put their contact details. And then you can put at the bottom, I do not want my relatives who may be stored on the NHS system to be contacted in the event of my death. This sounds very bleak, but I would absolutely suggest making a will in this situation. I think it's really important that your final wishes are observed and that that person who's close to you, who's understanding that they have a copy of that will and that they know what your final wishes are in that situation. There's no formal way to be able to, unfortunately, divorce or take away your actual relatives in this situation. But you can make your wishes very clear in a signed letter. Make sure it's signed, make sure it's dated and make sure it's sent to somebody else that they have a copy of it somebody that you want to call in that situation. You can also keep that by your bedside or wherever you are if you do become sick. So in the event that you go into hospital, you can give that to the paramedics or give that to your caregivers who can then act upon those wishes. And your wishes should be observed in that situation as long as you've found a way to make them clear and that any relative that you don't want to be in touch with shouldn't really be contacted. However, we have to manage expectations. These are extraordinary times and the NHS is under a lot of pressure. So it's hard to know exactly what will play out in that situation. But that's our advice on that very practical note that you don't want other people to be contacted. And worth just letting people know that, as many people as you feel comfortable knowing that, really. But do making sure that one or two particular people have that letter and you do make a will. That's really important. That's mm, really useful to yeah. know that there are things you can do, that even if the law, you can't change the law, you can communicate clearly to other people and they'll do and yeah. they should do that. I but, think that that's the best you can do without the law changing, which is something we as an organisation could look at actually after this has passed. Becca, there are some other questions I know that have come in, particularly for young people. Would you like me yes. to ask those? That okay. would be wonderful, Jonathan. Thank you. Um, I'm a student and all my flatmates are going home. I'm going to be alone in halls. How can I feel safe, connected and not get evicted? Okay, really interesting question here. The isolation aspect, we would absolutely recommend that you reach out to your student services department. They are often now doing at university, people who are vulnerable register, who then the staff and the university staff will make sure that they know that you're there and that they're reaching out to you and making sure that you have everything that you need. It's my understanding from the university sector that nobody is going to get evicted from student accommodation at this time. However, if you're in private halls, that's as yet a little bit unclear. So if you've got a tenancy agreement that's ending during this time, new legislation that has been passed over recent days should ensure that you're not going to actually get evicted during this time. So you should be able to stay put. But in terms of managing the isolation, reach out to your friends. Even if they're not living with you, then you can absolutely reach out over WhatsApp. 
make sure your student support service knows and just make the most of the family of kin and friends that you've made. Make sure that they are there to support you. And I'd be quite direct about telling them what you need, that I really need some people to look out for me at this time. Like, can we have a call every couple of days or can we keep in touch through WhatsApp? And I think there's no shame in saying I need this right now from you. And often we're a bit backwards about coming forwards with needing people that are not relatives. But I think it's really, really important to say this is what I need. And I'd really appreciate it if you could be there for me. So much of it is about expressing your needs clearly and being able to formulate them clearly. That's a really good combination of a very practical, factual advice and some tips on dealing with the emotional side of it as well and the social side of it. So the next question yeah. here, Becca, would be about tenancies. So it's my tenancy agreement yeah. might be running out during a time when emergency measures are in place. People affected might be students or they might not be students. Yeah, and that can be so frightening. I think what's very clear about this emergency and the COVID-19 crisis is that it just completely outlines whether you've got a safety net or not. And home is such an important part of our well-being. It's one of our most basic needs. And people can feel very concerned if they haven't got a home at this time. What I would say is that you won't be able to be evicted at least until the middle of June because that is something that the Chancellor and new legislation has announced for renters. And even if you're a student in halls of residence, you will have an assured shorthold tenancy. And that means that you can't be evicted during this time. They've made sure that everybody is going to have a home in those terms. If you do something very antisocial, like you completely trash your halls of residence or, you know, you start burning things down, there's probably a chance that you could go through. You might be evicted because of loopholes in that legislation around this. But if you're being a respectful tenant, even if you can't pay your rent during this time, you can't be evicted. That's really important to know. And I would hold tight and feel the security that the government has put in place there for you. That sounded really reassuring, actually, Becca, at a time when there's not much reassurance to be had. That's very useful. So then, if we move on to the next one, it's about employment. And I've lost my part-time job, which was my way of funding my living costs. I might not be able to pay my rent. What can I do? What a horrible situation, isn't it? In this situation, you may have lost your part-time job. Depending on whether you were employed or not employed, it's worth actually talking to your employer because the Chancellor has underwritten the wages, 80% of the wages for people who are employed. So that means that your employer can actually claim your wages from the government over this period. It might be worth ringing them up and asking them whether that's something that they can consider doing, like keeping you on and paying you because they will be able to recoup the costs from the government. And if you weren't actually employed, you were a freelancer or you're on a zero hours contract, then it's worth waiting for some more announcements around what they're doing self-employed people from the government. But in terms of paying your rent, which I know is one of the most basic things and paying for your food, first of all, you're not going to be evicted if you don't pay your rent. That's something that I've just answered a little bit in the last question. 
but I wouldn't worry about meeting your living costs at this moment. You won't be expected to cough up for your rent immediately and there may be a way of repaying it back in the future. If you have a specific question about that, I would definitely reach out to your student service department, your local job seekers or other places that are giving advice like citizens advice just to clarify your situation. It's always worth getting information and advice from government sources, other charities as well, just to make sure that you know exactly what your situation is because it can be really easy to just go into worry and rumination without clearly having some of the facts around what you're entitled to. And also your employer is being supported now, so definitely reach back out to them and see if they can still employ you during this period. I think that's really helpful because there's so much being written at the moment and of course things are changing so rapidly. It really is useful to hear that from a speaking voice rather than trying to read Ah. through websites. And if you're a student, then I think universities are really acutely aware that there are a lot of people that consider their campuses home and they are working really hard to be able to make sure that people can stay and they're not isolated. So I think it's just worth reaching out to your university and just seeing what's happening there. We've actually just got one more question left, a more general one, I think, which is, how can I maintain my mental health while self-isolating? Ooh, what a big question. It is, isn't it? I think we've covered a lot of it in the discussion that we've had to some extent. Mm. We can recap things like yoga, meditation or mindfulness, doing something creative, writing or art. But I think one of the other things I've heard a lot of people saying is about structure, about structuring a day so that it has some form to it. It's also about looking forward to things, anticipating things that will be fun. For me, I can only say what I can do in this situation, but I think there's some good evidence to say that talking to other people and your friends and staying connected virtually on WhatsApp or Skype or Zoom is going to be really good for your mental health to make you feel like you're not actually isolated. So definitely it's really worth staying in touch with friends. I'm going to put a link to a really lovely yoga studio. They have free classes and videos online that you can do. It's a really good chance and opportunity to explore some of those mindfulness and yogic practices and how that might impact your mental health. Of course, creative things, getting creative in whatever way that means for you. And I think in a way, being a bit silly, it's a very serious situation what's happening, but can we have conversations where we don't focus on that all the time? Can we not focus on the fear? Can we not focus on the difficulty? But what can I be grateful for? And no gratitude practice isn't always what everybody likes to do, but I think we're about to learn what very simple things we can really appreciate, be that a walk down the park or be that buying a cup of coffee. I think we're about to understand these things that are precious to us and that are part of our routine. Something very, very practical, very, very, very practical that I think really helps my mental health is having a cold shower in the morning. (laughs) It sounds terrible and it sounds frightening, but it's a really amazing thing. Four minutes or less, it depends on your body really, but Wim Hof is a specialist in cold therapy. And what it does is it really stimulates 
your immune system, which is good for this time of year, but also stimulates lots of endorphins and making you feel invigorated and feel ready for the day. So I would totally recommend getting out of bed and dragging yourself into a nice cold shower. And there's nothing that makes me feel more alive in the morning, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. That might work for some people. That's great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You'll all be converts to therapy by the end, I'm sure. <laughs> Showers, are, yeah, I, a warm shower might not have the same benefits as a cold one. But it also, <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> Something about relaxing in a relaxing in a bath as well. <laughs> yeah. Wow. No, I, I should try I the cold one. And mm. there's something about not letting yourself go, right? So something about getting up. Mm. And if you're a woman or you like putting on makeup, just making sure that you're making yourself presentable for the day. I find that so empowering and that really helps my mental health. But even though I'm working from home, I'm getting dressed. I'm putting my shoes on when I'm working. I feel like I'm at an office. Or, mm. I'm, you know, I'm basically just making myself ready for life, whether I'm inside or outside. And I think that has a really profound impact on how I see myself and my mental health. Yeah, picking up on something you said uh, about having fun, actually, and it not being wrong to have fun, as long as it's safe, as long as it's not compromising your safety in terms of COVID, it's okay to be jolly, it's okay to have a laugh, it's okay to connect to people virtually. I think that's Mm. a really key message. Somebody said to me recently, it's not a holiday, you know. And I thought, well, no, it's not a holiday. And you do have to take it seriously. But it's also self-care, taking care of yourself and having fun. Mm. And laughter is therapy, isn't it? Massages our internal muscles. It brings us something to our mental health. So even if it's just watching stand-up comedy on Netflix or on whatever streaming service you have, then that's something that is really recommended. If it's a comedy show or cracking the odd joke, it can't be bleak all the time. Otherwise, I think that's where your mental health does begin to struggle. Absolutely. I'm just thinking of a post that a friend put on Facebook that really made me giggle yesterday, which was just him sitting opposite a cuddly soft toy dog and he's having a kind of stare out competition, who blinks first. <laughs> he's just kind of he's just talking about the boredom of being at home. He's just, just a series of these photos of him staring at this dog. <laughs> it, well, it just made me giggle anyway. There was an amazing one from Italy where there's a woman who is just about to go on the news via Skype and then her husband walks up behind her in his pants <laughs> and then sees, the, <laughs> sees that she's on the news <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and just does this yeah. frightful, almost slapstick kind of run out of the shot in his pants. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> That's going to happen, isn't it? Definitely. <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah, it certainly is. Jonathan, thank you ever so much for talking and spending the time today to help our community. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure and it's been helpful for me actually to think about some of these things for myself too. So thank you, Becca. Yeah, thank you very much. And keep well, keep safe. You too. Speak soon. Yeah, keep up the cold showers. (laughs) Take care. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Standalone is a really small charity. Becca started the charity seven years ago and has built it up to what it is now, supporting people in six different UK locations through support groups 
and also running a national campaign for estranged students to get them more support and visibility in their higher education process. Standalone have done such a huge amount in a short time, but what they really need to ensure that they're around in the long term and that they can scale properly is donations from people like you. If you support charities, you'll know that there are bigger charities that ask for donations all the time. On television, billboards, on the tube, on the bus, and they have really big campaigns. This is great, but as a small charity, Standalone can't afford to do those kinds of campaigns. So we are asking you, our committed listeners who are impacted by this issue, to support the charity. If you can set up a monthly donation of just five or ten pounds, it makes a huge difference to what Standalone can do for you and other people affected by estrangement. If you go to their Just Giving site, which is linked in the podcast show notes, justgiving.com forward slash standalone, then you can make a one-off donation and also set up a monthly donation if you're able to. Your funds go a really long way to supporting people with this niche issue. A lot of people think that support should just be with them, but it's only with the help of genuine contributors that Standalone can reach and support as many people as possible. Please do consider giving a monthly donation to Standalone or giving a one-off donation on the Just Giving site. Thank you. And as always, if you have any thoughts to share with us about this podcast series, then please do so. The easiest way to get in touch with us would be via the Twitter, which is at UK Stand Alone. You can sign up for, or look out for, the newsletter soon, for your chance to give constructive feedback about the Standalone podcast as we move forward into the second season. In response to recent events, we'll be releasing new podcasts in the coming days and weeks to further support you during this period of isolation. And if you'd like to get involved and share your experiences of estrangement, you can do so via the Standalone newsletter. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay active, stay healthy. Maybe don't feel like you need to have a cold shower, though.